What actions are companies taking to reduce carbon emissions? And how can this impact performance in fixed income markets? We'll find out. Hey guys, welcome to episode 13 of Delta, brought to you by the International Business of Federated Hermes. This episode is entitled Giving Credit to Decarbonization and will come in two parts. The topic for today is to understand what actions companies are taking to reduce their carbon emissions and how this can impact their performance in fixed income markets. So it's Monday, the 29th of June. ITRAX crossover today is pretty much touching the recent wides. We're back out as wide as 405 basis points today, having seen roughly a week of widening. Last time we spoke to you, the market was feeling very confident about the exit from the COVID pandemic, but confidence is starting to wane as concerns start to rise about um, what might happen if a second wave starts to hit both emerging markets and certain states within the US, which is most relevant for those markets. In episode 12, we marked the 10th anniversary of our global high yield capability by looking at the top 10 changes in the high yield market over the past decade. Let's just take a quick look back at what Fraser, our head of credit, had to say about the staggering growth in the high yield over that 10 year period. I guess the first thing to say is that the market has roughly doubled in size. In fact, it's actually grown by about 10% just in the last few months. Um, as, as part of that growth, you've also seen the number of issuers um, accessing the market continue to increase. Um, that's roughly increased by about 40% to 50, over 1,500 issuers today. So a lot to choose from. And the size of the issues that they are um, uh, issuing into the market also has risen pretty dramatically and is up now well above sort of $700 million as of today. That surge in issuance that Fraser spoke about has been underpinned by the enormous stimulus that governments and central banks have brought to markets this year. This has been aimed at keeping companies afloat and large sections of the economy have effectively been put on hold to stop the spread of the coronavirus. Now, with lockdowns in many countries starting to ease as societies move back to living in more normal circumstances, economic activity is likely to increase. People will begin to travel again, services will resume, manufacturing will grind back into gear. This is, of course, a welcome development, especially for many people whose livelihoods have suffered. But it will tarnish what is perhaps the only clear silver lining of this pandemic, a global reduction in carbon emissions. Here are a few figures that illustrate how dramatically the environment has benefited from the lockdowns across the world. By mid-March of this year, air traffic had halved compared to the same time last year. In China, carbon emissions declined by 18% in just six weeks. In the UK, road traffic fell by 70% during lockdown. And I've certainly experienced a massive reduction in the number of cars and lorries that I see on the roads as I cycle around and walk around London. And in Venice, the canals reportedly have turned blue for the first time in living memory. Lockdowns have been more effective in fighting the climate crisis than any commitment that had been made to meeting the two-degree warming limit set by the Paris Accord. Indeed, the world's efforts to fight this pandemic have driven the first decline in global emissions since the 
2009 financial crisis. Here at the International Business of Federated Hermes, we firmly take the view that neither investment outperformance nor the recovery from the pandemic should come at the expense of progress in preventing further global warming. So in this two-part episode of Delta, we'll look at decarbonisation as an investment theme in fixed income universe. Part one will focus on corporate credit, specifically how important carbon disclosures by companies have come into our investment analysis and the impact of engagement in helping businesses establish and then strive to meet their carbon reduction targets. In part two, we'll look at real estate markets. And with activity and emissions likely to increase after this hiatus, we'll discuss ambitious plans to achieve net zero construction and maintenance of properties. And we'll look at carbon as a factor in pricing real estate debt transactions. So let's begin with part one. With me to discuss how the carbon reduction efforts of companies can be factored into investment decisions and how engagement can play an influential role in helping them lower emissions are Nachu Chokalingam, Senior Credit Portfolio Manager, and Aaron Hay, Lead Engager, Fixed Income. Both Nachu and Aaron have been on the Delta podcast previously, but welcome again, guys. Nice to speak to you. Thanks. Thanks, Jacko. Pleasure. So, First, first question comes to you, Nachu. Um, let's start with disclosures. What's the general level of quality that we're currently seeing in carbon disclosures amongst issuers? I'd say it varies quite widely and depends on a number of different factors, including what industry the company is in, what rate, credit rating do they have, where are they located, and often if they are public or private. Um, if we look across the different regions, our general view is that Europe is well ahead. The US is mixed, but is improving quite quickly as companies are responding to investor pressures. And EM is also fairly mixed, um, but again, showing some signs of improvement. I think one of the key messages is if companies are large cap, publicly listed, and they have a recurring presence in the capital markets, then their level of, and quality of disclosures tends to be higher. We as investors continue to push for more and better quality disclosures because that helps us find investment opportunities. But we totally understand that not all companies are going to have the same resources dedicated to this effort today, but we want to ensure that they are moving in the right direction. So we've talked there about geographies. We've talked about size. Are there any difference by sector or by rating? Is high yield better than investment grade? Or other sectors, I imagine there are certain sectors for whom disclosure on this is absolutely paramount to their future existence. Energy, for example. Any general trends that you can spot for us? So firstly, to touch on the difference between um, high yield and investment grade issuers, um, to some extent, the rating does impact the level of disclosures that we see. But it does depend on how big the companies are, how often they need to access the capital markets. Um, typically, as I said earlier, we find that the larger they are, and if they are public and they have a recurring presence to raise capital, then they are more likely to have better disclosures. But this could be a double B company, perhaps a recent fallen angel, um, rather than just a high quality investment grade company. I think it is true, though, that as you move down the credit rating spectrum into low single B and triple C issuers, perhaps the focus is not there yet. And it's our job as investors to try and make it that company's focus. In terms of um, sectors, I think for many investors, the primary focus is still on understanding the companies that have higher carbon footprints, so such as those in heavy industrials or energy companies. And there is, again, broad diversification within these sectors. 
if we take just energy as an example, we have several global oil majors committing now to net carbon neutral targets by 2050. Understandably, the pathway with which they will get there is still a bit unclear and will involve a variety of things, including shifting capex away from heavy oil and gas to renewables and other low carbon businesses, and also investing in technologies such as carbon capture. But even within that space, we have small energy companies right now not even disclosing their current emissions, let alone their targets for emission reductions. Another sector that is kind of key to analyze in this is the banks. We think banks are key to decarbonizing the economy. In some sense, banks are as important as regulation because they are a provider of oxygen to companies. And by that, I mean companies will need capital to invest in clean energy infrastructure, and this will come from the banks. And there is a lot of pressure, particularly at the global banks now, to in effect green up their operations as the social pressures are mounting that they have to make changes. Okay. Thank you for that, um, Nachu. I guess what what I'd like to just put you on the spot about, what's the gap look like between the winners and the losers in terms of reporting? What leaders and the laggards? Is it is it vast? Are the laggards disclosing nothing and the leaders doing everything we want? Or is it slightly more nuanced than that? Unfortunately, I'd say it's still pretty wide. I mean, we speak to issuers who've been talking about climate change and how they are transitioning their businesses for many years and some, believe it or not, who are hearing this for the first time from investors. I think what would really help is some regulatory encouragement and perhaps some standardization and reporting requirements to help narrow this gap. And is that going to come across the globe? I mean, you you were on the first ever episode of the Delta where we talked about US-China trade tensions. Is there something that is going to come globally now that the US has pulled out of the Paris Accord? Globally, I'm not sure. I still think it's probably likely to happen at the regional or country-specific level, but I think it is definitely becoming an issue that is being felt across the board. So, you know, certain countries and regions are ahead of others, but, you know, I think other countries are wanting to catch up quickly. Mm. Just coming from my EM background, I know talking to EM countries and companies, um, governments are well aware of the issues that the, the economy is going to be facing and the climate is facing, and they want to try and make changes as quickly as they possibly can. So let's zoom in on the on the leaders, those that do a good job of disclosing. What do they communicate that others don't? Some examples, please. Sure. I, I would like to bring Aaron in to give his perspective on this question as well, because he reviews these disclosures on a daily basis. But one thing that I would like the listeners to bear in mind is that leaders tend to allocate capital to activities that help make their carbon footprints better. So we see they are making demonstrative change in the right way. Maybe Aaron can share his thoughts in terms of what he's seeing as well. Thanks, Nachu. Um, so I think what's really important here about some of the leaders, the, the thing that, that really makes some of the leaders stand out is around uh, retrospective versus prospective disclosure. And I think one of the big challenges, particularly in the high yield universe, is that you know companies have begun to disclose their carbon emissions on a retrospective basis that may show you a little bit of a, an emissions decline, uh, emissions intensity reduction. But what we're really looking for is uh, a prospective view of what the company is going to do over the next, uh, well, really the next decade. So many, many of the, the the external viewpoints on decarbonization in sectors and across economies, it does rely on pathways that take us through to 2030, uh, aligned with, with the, the goals of the Paris Accord. And so the 2050 targets are great. They're a strategy, 
but they're a very, very long-term strategy that's very difficult to keep companies accountable to in the near term. So I think what we see in, 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 in some of the leaders is uh, 20, 30 strategies with milestones uh, set along the way. Typically, that's around 2025. And they're focused on full scope, the full scope of carbon emissions, so scope one, two, and three. And those, those targets are increasingly being set against a science-based framework. So that means um, a, typically an external third party that understands the sector will suggest what the pathways need to be bespoke to that sector to, in order to keep global warming um, under, under two degrees. So that's what the science-based targets uh, initiative is aiming for. And when those targets are validated, that means that a third party has actually assessed the robustness of those pathways and what that management team will do over the next, really over the next four years to 2025 and then through to 2030. And I think that's what really is setting leaders apart. Um, and, and that's one of the key points that we've, we've been able to engage on so far. Super useful. Thank you very much for that, that Aaron. And for a reminder for listeners, anyone who wants to know more about how engagement works in the context of fixed income, um, just shuffle your way back to episode seven when Aaron was on discussing how engagement works. Uh, in our space. Coming back to you now, again, Nachu, one of the things that we've focused very heavily on um, in the way in which we analyze credits within our portfolios is to think about pricing the impact of some of these E, S, and G factors. How does this particular climate change activity feed into pricing people's credit risk more accurately? Yeah, thanks, Jacko. So when we look at companies, we try to assess both the physical but also the transition risks um, that those companies are likely to be facing. So by physical risks, I mean how will extreme weather, disruption in their supply chain, higher prices for raw materials because of droughts, or lower labor productivity impact this particular company? And by transition risks, I mean how will that company be able to transition to a low-carbon economy? What investments in low-carbon technology will they need to make? And what existing high polluting assets will they need to write off? So both of these two risks involve costs that the company has to bear. And we look to assess what the impact of those costs are going to be on the company's cash flows and ultimately their credit quality. Um, One concern we do have is if these risks are underestimated, then creditors are exposed to potentially unexpected and large financial losses if things do go wrong. So it does play a very important part in terms of our scoring of ESG of companies. So how often have you found investment opportunities that offer strong returns and also support the transition to a low carbon economy? How many of the winners are also winners from an investment perspective? Yeah, we do find them quite often, actually. And I wanted to share a couple of examples with you, if I may. Um, So firstly, it's a global cement manufacturer. They manage their carbon footprint so well that they managed to create a surplus of carbon credits in Europe, which they were then able to monetize. And this was supportive to their cash flows and their balance sheets and their credit spreads reactive on a positive side as well. And the second example is a global energy company that put carbon reduction initiatives as a central part of their corporate policy. And they have also been one of the outperformers in the credit space in recent years. So we do find that there is a very positive correlation between action that companies are taking on climate change, but also in terms of performance, in terms of returns. That's great to hear. And uh, I think it's really, really helpful in thinking about ways in which one can generate those positive financial returns as well as positive returns to our climate and our environment. One of the ultimate you know, movers within financial markets over the last 10 years or, or perceived movers within financial markets is the emergence of 
this green bond. Do you include any green bonds amongst the examples? We do look at green bonds, but we assess each one on their own individual merits. Our general view is that green bonds are good, but some of the structures need to be tweaked. Ideally, we'd like to see more outcomes-linked bonds because then there is some penalization if the issuer doesn't achieve what they say they are going to do. I think one of the main issues that people have had with green bonds is that the use of proceeds is not often very clear, and there are definitely various different shades of green. For example, we've seen some issuers issue green bonds to refinance non-green debt, which questions the spirit in which they are issuing the green bond market. Um, we know that you know ICMA and the EU are creating voluntary standards for green bond issuance. This is good. It will help tick some boxes and create some standardization in the green bond market, which is something I think the market has been craving for for many years. One thing that was interesting that we saw during the pandemic, though, is that we actually saw green bond issuance decline, but this was more than offset by issuance of social and pandemic bonds. So overall sustainable bond issuance rose, but there was a change in what type of bonds were being issued. Got it. Thank you very much, Nacho. And it kind of brings us back to something that Aaron was alluding to, which is that in order to assess whether the um, climate change impact is being uh, actually delivered, we need external um, sources of verification that that is occurring and some clear targets. So Aaron, your main focus is engaging with high yield companies. Um, One of the SDGs, number 13, is climate action. What have been some of the key observations you've made so far about what companies are doing in that high yield space and their attitudes towards climate change? Um, I think there's some really interesting and, and in some cases some very surprising observations about the high yield universe that that I didn't expect coming in from from more of an investment grade flavor um, engagement uh, job in the past. So I think the first the first thing that's really stood out to me is I'm quite surprised at the number of high yield companies where the timing is such at the beginning of engagement. So when we kick off a deeper, deeper sort of dialogue and relationship is that these companies are already very clearly feeling the pressure from a range of stakeholders to either clean up their disclosures on carbon emissions because they're quite poor. Um, you know, to in order to, to give investors and stakeholders an idea of what the full scope of carbon emissions is and what they're responsible for, or beginning to set much more meaningful targets that align with scientifically sound decarbonization pathways. So, so those, those external um, sort of frameworks, as, as, as you've just mentioned. And I think, I think the attitude, frankly, that we're, we're getting, and this particularly is around asset heavier um, perhaps more energy value chain focused or energy value chain adjacent product based high yield names is that those companies are running out of freeway on this being a yes or no question. And, you know, the intensity reductions that they've been able to achieve in the past, which really in many cases are business as usual because they come along with investing in more modern and efficient assets and infrastructure within their business. That's that, that's sort of a business as usual carbon emissions reduction, and it's sort of come along as a as a side benefit to those those kinds of investments. I think the the attitude is changing that these companies recognize that's no, that's no longer good enough over the next decade, and so that's that a more targeted plan, which as Nachu has mentioned earlier earlier today, that actually focuses on how we're going to allocate capital differently to to markedly decrease our carbon intensity across. The full value chain and not just in the emissions we we can necessarily and directly control this is going to be the focus and so as a result you know for us 
you know, we, we use we use our own internal objectives for change in, in engagement. I suppose between January 2020 and today, we've set 20 climate objectives on setting scope one, two, and three targets, which reach out to 2025 and 2030. Now, those objectives take a more unique form for each individual issuer. But for us, this is a major point of focus where it's time to pull up pull up one's boots and go from business as usual emissions reduction to something that's compatible with those external pathways that are that are provided by the science-based target setting initiative or or by other um, uh, other third parties that are that are trying to align emissions reduction with the the goals of the Paris Accord and similar climate frameworks. So walk me through that, Aaron. How does engagement help set carbon reduction targets, and how can engagement help these companies take steps towards meeting those targets? Yeah, it's a good, it's a really good question. So I think um, I meet with a, a range of energy names in the United States. Now, the benefit of doing that over time is that it not only builds our knowledge and our understanding of one business, it also builds our, our knowledge and understanding of what's happening across the peer group. So that becomes very powerful when you go into engagement and you're able to address one energy name and mention the two or three competitors and what they're doing on their, their carbon, carbon intensity reduction plans or their science-based target that they've just had approved, you know, you do see eyes go up around the room. And, and, and in many cases, it might surprise some of us to, to, to realize that not all of these companies are monitoring the, the ESG progress and, and in particular progress around climate action that is happening in their peer group. That, that may be something that's not the focus, whereas that is our focus in, in engagement in, in all the ESG issues that we, we cover. This is a really important one in high yield. So I think bringing in those real life examples and showing that the, the, the world directly around these companies is moving ahead is, is very, very valuable and important in the, the, the dialogue that we actually have from day to day with companies. Fabulous. Thank you for that, Aaron. Uh, just from my perspective, it, even uh, small improvements in disclosure or small improvements in what we receive within documents as new high yields come to market is sort of testament to, to what you and the, uh, and the team have been doing. It definitely feels like you know, as a debt capital markets uh, participant, there is more and more focus on these areas. And, and, you know, when we look through prospectuses, it does feel like it's becoming more and more one of the sort of front page items. So for asset managers, engagement helps us step back from that fixed income lens and see a broader view of the company and the world they function in. Working with them in the fixed income team, let's focus on that. How have you been able to bring that holistic view to bear when we discuss these names? Yeah, yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. So I think one of the challenges that any analyst would have without having um, sort of bespoke and specific engagements available for the companies that they're, they're covering is that in, in some cases you are relying on uh, an external viewpoint to, to make decisions around uh, decisions and analysis around ESG. So I've already seen this happen. I think in the way that, that our analysts cover, cover names, we've already been able to integrate some of the insights that come from knowing the company beyond what's on the page, what's on the disclosure, what, what third-party ratings agencies might be looking at because we've been able to have those discussions. So we see that in, in companies where we've been engaging for years our view of how that company is going to handle its emissions reduction pathways over the next decade might, quite frankly, be influenced by a, a conversation we had around culture with the chair or, or, or with the CFO. And, and, you know, there's something that can be said for, for those kinds of conversations and understanding how the companies are thinking about and approaching these challenges. Now, 
you know, we, we take these conversations at face value. We believe that companies are being honest with us in, in, in their conversations and it can inform that ESG opinion, which when it's just a cold number, sometimes it can look overly rosy or it can look overly, overly um, uh, pessimistic. The other thing to, to keep in mind is that most of that data is based on retrospective performance. It doesn't tell you very much about the future, at least not yet in terms of that third party data. Um, and then I think in terms of a specific example, um, there was an international technology company that we had some, some long-standing governance uh, conversations with through one of our lead engagers. And um, it became clear through conversations with the analyst, with the portfolio manager and with the lead engager is that there wasn't very high hope for this company to improve and change its, its, some of the governance challenges that we were really concerned about. You know, the, the likelihood of change here was relatively low. That's not something you would be able to get from a ratings agency or from the newspapers. That was through conversations with the CFO and through conversations with members of the corporate governance team over a couple of years. So that influenced a, a decision ultimately to, to, to exit that name. Very useful, uh, Aaron. And you know, just summarizing that and reflecting it back for the listeners. Here, we're not just looking for does good or is doing good, we are sometimes looking for change being made. And I think that when we go and speak to companies, uh, when Aaron goes to speak to companies and others within the organization go and speak to companies, the expectation isn't just that you know we'll be able to work with them, but that they will go on a journey with us. And this climate crisis requires us to do nothing less than that, to work with these companies to deliver improvements year on year on year. And it, it really does bring to light how influential your engagement interactions can be on decision making when you express it that way, Aaron. So every single time we have a Delta uh, episode, we have an all options on the table because we've got two parts. I'm going to ask these questions of, of you guys, of, of Nacho and Aaron um, first, and then in part two, uh, we'll ask um, the same question. Recently, uh, we were discussing with clients. We were on a client call and a really refreshing question came in. Um, and I'll have a go at answering this as well in part two, because I thought it was such an interesting question. What would you like to see next on the pathway to decarbonization? And you can choose from companies, from markets or from policymakers. And if you don't mind, Nacho, I'll come to you first. I think we need to continue to push governments to continue climate action. Governments are clearly right now prioritizing the pandemic globally, but as that crisis fades and countries start to look at the future, tackling the climate emergency must take center stage of their plans. I know several think tanks around the world have been publishing green recovery reports, and you know some of their elements need to be taken very, very seriously. And one thing that's really important to consider is governments are the catalyst for change to scale up. And once it's scaled up, it then becomes the norm almost, which is what we need to really see when tackling this particular emergency. And one thing we've seen during the pandemic, though, is how certain countries have been tying the receipt of state aid to climate action. We've seen this in Canada and in France, to name a couple. Um, we think this is a good initiative. It needs to be broader in scope and probably followed more broadly globally. But we do need to monitor the progress of these companies and make sure that they're meeting what is asked of them. So that would be the one thing that I would say. Fabulous, Natu. Thank you very much for that. Aaron? I'm going to reiterate what, what Natu said. And I think on a, a sort of multilateral and, and sort of national policy, uh, we need to put a global price on carbon. It, the, science, the science that is trusted 
about where we're headed as a global society is not good. Um, and you know, the, what we've been trying to do is really to level the playing field globally. And I think making, making it unavoidable to pay for this externality is, is one of the, the few tools we will have in the future um, to move much more quickly on this issue because we need to. Um, and, and it would provide a, a clearer playing field for many of the companies that we're engaging with as well. Um, you know, the time is, is really running out here. And then when it comes to companies, um, I want to see science-based targets with 2030 uh, being the scope, not 2050, because we need to keep in mind the, the decision-making framework and the people that are going to be around to deliver on a 2050 target are not the people in charge today. However, the people who are in charge today need to start taking action now if they want to hit a 2025 or, or a 2030 science-based target. And I would like to see those targets validated by a third party so that uh, we know that they are robust and meaningful uh, from a view that isn't just from, from that management team, ideally. Very good. Thank you very much for that, Aaron. And thank you, Natu, both of you for joining us in part one. That wraps up part one of this episode. Um, my three key takeaways from this discussion, I think, would be the point that we were discussing about the gap between the leaders and the laggards in this space, that there are some which are really progressing very rapidly, publishing science-based targets, monitoring and reporting on their monitoring and where they continue to engage uh, with the likes of ourselves and others to continue to improve and that there definitely feels like there is a, a real energy there amongst those leaders but amongst the laggards as Natu and Aaron have both mentioned there are some who we engage with who haven't even begun to think about this challenging question and I think that really does shine a light on uh, us as asset managers and others within the investment community to make sure that they place an emphasis on all corporates uh, and all issuers around the world and bring to bear all of the power that we have at our um, disposal. Second is that, that last point that I was um, reminded of by Aaron there about the difference between 2050 and 2030. I think we really need to push for 2030. 2050 is likely to be too late based on current science. And that really means that we need to accelerate uh, combating this climate crisis. Uh, but for me, and you know, I'm, I'm deeply passionate about this and being a fixed income guy, I like to be miserable and worry about things. But it, the really big takeaway from much of what we've discussed is that that we're clearly noticing this issue much more than we have ever previously. And this pandemic may just have given us the opportunity to reflect and say we can do something about this. So thank you both, Natu and Aaron, for bringing us those perspectives, both positive and you know, reminders that there's more to do. And I'm sure we'll have you both back in a few years to discuss where I made any progress in these respects. So that just about wraps it up. Join us for part two, where we're going to focus on carbon reduction in real estate and the implications of debt investors in that space. Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the international business of Federated Hermes, please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only, and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Performance should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All performance mentioned is historical.
Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results, and investors may not recover the full amount invested.